Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Hello and welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Faisa Zakaria from Nanyang Technological University and your host for today. It is a pleasure to have with me Dr. Lo Ka Sheng, a co-author of Tuberculosis, The Singapore Experience, 1867 to 2018, published by Routledge in 2021. Dr. Lo is a historian of Singapore and an honorary research fellow at the University of Western Australia. He's interested in urban history and the social history of cities. He's the author of the award-nominated Squatters into Citizen, and he currently runs Chronicles Research and Education, a research consultancy on Singapore heritage. Kashing, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. And let me first give a quick overview of the book before we begin. Tuberculosis, the Singapore Experience, was co-written by Dr. Lo, who's a historian, and Dr. Su Liang, a medical doctor. The book charts the relationship between disease, society, and the state and outlines the struggles of the colonial and post-colonial governments to cope with infectious disease. Colonial administrators initially viewed tuberculosis as a racial problem linked to poverty, housing, and insanitary habits of the Chinese working class. After the Second World War, ambitious medical and urban improvement initiatives were established by the returning colonial government. And these schemes became a template for the post-colonial Singapore state to undertake public health programs and who struggle against infectious disease never really ended. So I think in the pandemic context that we are in today, this book is a very apt one to discuss. So let's start though with the disease that is the focus of the book, and that's tuberculosis. Um, Kashin, could you tell us more about this disease, how it presents itself, how it spreads, and why it is so interesting? There has not been that many uh, books written about tuberculosis compared to some of the other, you know, diseases that are the favorites, you know, in the, in the history of medicine, like uh, leprosy, mental illness. So tuberculosis came about uh, not because uh, Liang and I were interested to speak to the literature, the scholarly literature on uh, tuberculosis, uh, but mainly because of Li Yang's own interest in the history of uh, infectious disease. He's an infectious diseases expert and he's very much involved in the COVID-19 response today in Singapore. Prior to that, you know, before he was pulled into the pandemic control, he, he has been uh, a TB expert and he has been uh, one of the physicians who has pushed for awareness of the continuing relevance of TB today. is not an ancient disease as many Singaporeans believe. It's a disease that brings out the threat of uh, antimicrobial resistance, uh, which is a threat beyond the disease. It's a threat in terms of the biomedical treatment. In that sense, uh, we were always interested in TB in the present. 
that has always been the way that Li Yang has contributed to the world. He's very interested in the history of medicine and tuberculosis. Uh, but we always were thinking about, you know, what was happening in Singapore. Many of the themes in the book, such as, you know, uh, migration, the urban context, you know, Singapore is a city-state, are things that has this connection between the past and the present. And I think we definitely want to discuss, I think, some of these themes, migration, race. But uh, maybe just to sort of round up the introduction, how do you come to work together with Dr. Sue? Did he read your previous book? And we kind of got together because of that? Well, I, I made him read my previous books <laughs> after we worked together. No, you know, SG50, around that time, I think 2014 or 15, Li actually published a, a kind of a small book on infectious diseases in Singapore. And he's conducted a number of oral history interviews with older doctors who were involved in the control of infectious diseases in Singapore. And we talked about what we could do together. So this TB project was part of the antimicrobial resistance project that NUS was doing. And I think it's fantastic. Li Yang and the Sosui Hock School of Public Policy, sorry, Public Health, are interested in having a historical perspective in addition to uh, the clinical and the uh, biomedical research that they are doing. And the second thing is we, we work together tremendously well. You know, uh, Li Yang is very open-minded. He's very interested in history. Probably he has read more uh, books on the history of infectious diseases than I did. You know, I mean, I worked on leprosy. That was my first entry into, uh, you know, the history of medicine. But of course, you know, leprosy always has a special place in kind of category of infectious diseases. And until about 50 years ago, leprosy was not considered one of infectious diseases. And in fact, tuberculosis is also interesting because it's also not considered one of the infectious diseases, although it is infectious. I want to pick up, I think, on something you said about how this book came out of broader project on antimicrobial resistance, right? Which sort of brings me to the framework of the book. And in some ways, I was quite surprised that Foucault doesn't appear in your book <laughs> at all. I mean, especially since it comes out from this sort of infant yeah. and disease society and the state. Yeah, it really focuses, I think, much on um, life experiences. King. So could you tell us a little bit about the framework of your book? And how do you see the disciplining of the body politic through the state, if not through Foucault? I think I had a conscious decision not to overuse Foucault again. I have been actually taken to task many times, you know, for using Foucault in the past. Like uh, my first work on leprosy, that was uh, a lot of that was on Foucault, you know. For this work on tuberculosis, the main idea was just to tell the story. As uh, we talked about in the book, it's a disease that wasn't just treated with antibiotics or by doctors or in hospitals, you know, it went to every aspect of social life, family life, employment, the birth and the you know, bringing up of infants and children. So I think you can certainly utilize the Foucauldian framework. Uh, on the other hand, it kind of tells the story for us. It, it will be interesting to try to use Foucauldian ideas of control for some aspects, I guess, of the narrative. But the book itself, you know, was just mainly concerned to to narrate the main developments, you know, how the policies developed and the effects that it had, and also to tell the social history of tuberculosis. Foucault was mainly about, you know, governmentality and what the government was doing. And to me, that's just a, a little bit boring after a while. You know, it, it's much more interesting to talk about what Foucauldian scholars would call micro-politics uh, of people. Uh, so the social history side was very interesting for me. And which I tried to 
uncover more. And the, the, the difficulty with uh, this TB project compared to the leprosy project I did previously was uh, we had so much difficulty uh, in uh, finding people to interview, you know, patients mm-hmm. to interview. We did a few I- interviews with uh, recent TB patients. Uh, one of them was a uh, former graduate. She was an undergrad when she had it. And another one was also uh, an undergrad. So these are two students. I mean, they are, they are now older, uh, but uh, they caught the disease. They were quite young. These great interviews. But generally, it was difficult to find people to interview compared to leprosy. You know, the leprosy, uh, ex-patients I interviewed were living together in one place. They were also kind of finding it relevant to speak out, you know, and finding it more comfortable to talk about leprosy. Whereas uh, there's still a lot of stigma in Singapore about tuberculosis, uh, and they are not sort of an organized community, right? If so, so that if you had TB, is something you try to hide. The social histories that we wrote was more in terms of uh, what we could find uh, uh, between the lines of the official documents and other conventional non-oral history sources. Yeah, Foucault is, 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 is there. Um, and there is control of the body for sure. Uh, and there is also resistance to that. There's also uh, uh, a lot of interesting ways that Singaporeans past and present have responded to tuberculosis. And I think one of the interesting things that you highlight in your book is not so much about disciplining by the state, but about the reflexivity of the state and how managing disease um, reveals that the Singapore state is, like, um, in your words, quintessentially modernist. It possessed a sustained sense of anxiety that drove the political will to improve. So tell us a bit more about this will to improve and what this meant on the ground. Yeah, um, and you, you know you can kind of see it today. You know, with the control of COVID nineteen, the very deliberately and intentionally calibrated approach from the beginning of the circuit breaker, not to just shift between lockdown and open it, opening, but to analyze and respond specifically to new circumstances. So this was uh, something that uh, happened in the 70s and 80s, you know, when TB was no longer a a sort of nationwide health threat, but the disease was still around in the bodies of many Singaporeans. And that is where you have a lot of this deliberation going on. So a lot of things was happening, even though the policy was being scaled down in the public sphere, Behind the scenes, you have got doctors and officials still discussing and, and thinking about uh, which demographic group is at risk. You know, what should we do to control the disease? So in many countries, and, and Singapore to some extent is similar, uh, it's not that unique. There, there has been a you know, corresponding move, move of resources away from tuberculosis towards like chronic diseases. Once the antibiotics and the, the preventive aspects of TB control have been put in. So I think that happened in Singapore too, because you can see that some of the doctors and as well as community uh, leaders you know, from the Singapore Anti-Tuberculosis Association, SATA, they, they begin to complain you know, that, that there's a neglect of uh, continuing TB threats. You can see that Singapore kind of followed the other countries in some respects. But I think behind the scenes, uh, there's continuing push to try to understand the evolution of the disease in the population, in the community. And that's always hard to, hard to do. You know, it's much easier to 
know the disease in the hospitals rather than in the community, as we all know now, COVID-19, which is best re- reflected in the elimination program, which came out in the 1990s, which targeted a totally different area of the population. The elderly, mostly, was very much focused on the dot uh, therapy approach, you know, to make sure that the patients finish their medication, take their pills. You know, it's still an ongoing struggle. TB cannot be eliminated, you know, in the sense that it has been largely controlled in some of the other countries. So testimony partly to the openness of Singapore, uh, the growing population. The reflexivity is also in terms of how the Singapore government looks at the communities that it oversees. So you have that elderly generation, which is very difficult for the state to, even the Singapore state to socialize. You know, we can see this with COVID-19, you know, it's often the elderly people who breach many of the restrictions and also the migrant community who come in. Many often bring the disease from their own countries. So how do you select and define the scale of your study? There are certainly uh, transnational aspects, regional aspects of the disease. If you look at the immigration that was largely from the region during the colonial period, from China, India, maybe a bit further, Middle East. In the present period, TB is brought in by the countries that supply us labour, migrant labour, and also possibly some of the uh, working professionals as well. Uh, so that is still actually within the region. The kind of places of, influ- of uh, influence hasn't changed that much. Well, other than that, the book looks at tuberculosis in a city-state. That is kind of the informal title of the book. It's just that Rowledge wanted a very serious title that encompasses everything. Uh, but really, the book is about uh, Singapore as a TB in Singapore as a city-state. And you know, as with uh, all city-states, uh, you have that open character mm-hmm. that allows the entry of infectious diseases. So there's a lot more that can be studied you know, in a more transnational fashion to, to see uh, for the people who come here with the microbe in their lungs, how, how they contracted this disease in their first place and when they return. Uh, often they are not treated you know, before they return. So that's been one of the critiques of uh, the TB policy in Singapore today, which is you know, what happens to them and what happens to their communities when they return uh, without proper treatment. And I think the connection with migrant labour also brings us to the issue of class and the way in which disease is perceived differently across different classes. And I think this is one of the most fascinating aspects highlight. So in some of the early chapters, you talked about how pauperism is seen as a disease and how um, tuberculosis is also seen differently in different hospitals. So could you tell us a bit more about the specific connections that you uncovered between poverty and disease? It kind of largely syncs with the uh, periodization of uh, Singapore's history. So the you know first 50 years, formally speaking, there was much less interest by the British colonial government in TB. In fact, this went on you know un- until after the Second World War. And even then, you know, they had to be really pushed to take a firm stand on tuberculosis. But in the first 50 years, Singapore was ruled from India and the policy was very much limited by you know, what the British were willing to commit to. They were not really interested in policing the population. They were more interested in uh, keeping, you know, the spaces, the public spaces clear of 
paupers, vagrants, uh, whom they would arrest and then move to prison. So that was the limit of that policy. And other than that, of course, uh, TB patients who wanted to be treated, who were willing to be treated by Western medicine, by Western doctors, would uh, be treated in Tan Tok Seng Hospital, the paupers hospital, which was not very well maintained and, you know, was very, very often not treatment at all. Uh, so this changed, you know, with the transfer of Singapore and straight sediments to the colonial office in 1967. You, you see then the very slow beginnings of a discourse about what to do with tuberculosis, not just among the paupers, but among the population at large who were the coolie population in a, in a city in Singapore. So this is a period where issues about environment, about sanitation, mixed up with concepts of racism and you know racial thinking about racial categorization and uh, spatial concentration and civilization of this thinking is of course a shop house in the inner city where the Chinese working class population lived. And you have got uh, a lot of British doctors. Uh, first one was someone who was actually not based in Singapore but became very influential, uh, W.J.R. Simpson, who undertook a study of sanitation in the city, in a town area in 1906, and uh, made very influential pronouncements on the Chinese problem, right? Sort of the Chinese housing problem and the threat of tuberculosis in the shop houses. So that theory was taken up by doctors in Singapore, European doctors in Singapore, began to evolve when Singapore evolved towards a more settled population. And after the war, you, you have the disappearance of this racial discourse, some, somewhat. You know why it's, it's saying after the war that this is a Chinese problem, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tuberculosis con- continues to be grouped in racial ways, in racial categories, like with many other things in Singapore in general. And so even today, you, you still have got, got that uh, demographic breakdown of t- TB cases by race, uh, which is not always useful because uh, really tuberculosis is a function of two things, right? Uh, one is uh, class in terms of, well, where, if you don't have the nutrition, you, you have to work when you're sick. Uh, so you, you, you're you more likely to contract TB or have it develop as a disease if you, know, you, you don't have the proper nutrition and you live in certain crowded quarters, residence, and you are more likely to get the disease and have it continue as a problem, as a chronic disease. Uh, if you have to work, you know, while you have the disease, you cannot afford the rest, right? So it's a function of social class in that sense. And the other factor is, of course, age, especially in recent decades. So the older you are, the same thing happens, right? You are, your constitution is weaker, your, your resistance has dropped. And while you were, your body was able to control the microbes in the body, before, you know, when you're in your 70s and 80s, then the disease develops. Uh, so it's two things. Uh, so thinking about having a nice table, you know, Chinese, Indians, Malays, reflects the thinking of the government. Uh, but it doesn't really, I think, best reflect the problems that, you know, they want to tackle in you know, TB elimination. 
And I think expanding on this issue of racialization of disease, right? What are some of the differences that you see in which uh, tuberculosis was perceived differently when it is discussed with respect to, say, the minority communities, the Malays and the Indians? Most of the, I mean, in terms of the number of admissions to Tandoxing Hospital and deaths in the hospital, you, you see that you know, the Chinese are overrepresented. And this is often the case. Uh, as far as I've seen in, you know, uh, leprosy as well and possibly other infectious diseases. This is partly, I think, because the Chinese, those who end up in the hospitals, especially in the 19th century and early 20th, uh, are those who, who don't have that social support, who don't have the kinship support. That's how they end up to hospital at a very advanced stage of their disease. Uh, whereas for the Malays, there is often a preference, just like the Chinese, right? There's often a preference to be treated via herbs and other traditional remedies. But uh, the difference between the Chinese and Malays is that uh, the Malays have their, I mean, the Malays are a more settled population in Singapore. Maybe not as settled as we like to think, right? Because they are also migrants in the region, but uh, they often treat the, the, the ill you know, within the community, within the kampong. So that's how the different ethnic groups experienced it in the colonial period. After the war, what happens when we see this national policy towards TB? They don't really discriminate between the different ethnic groups. So there are nationwide. I found that really impressive in terms of how TB control reached into every part of Singapore, including the outer islands, the offshore islands, you know, to the kampongs, not just the shop houses, but the kampongs, the new HGV estates. You know, that's that surveillance, right? That prevention, case finding, contact tracing. They went to the schools. Uh, so increasingly, you see that the policy lost that, you know, ethnic character, although it retained some of the ways of categorization, classification, uh, and, and that still shaped the thinking of uh, people who are trying to control the disease. And you're reminding us, I think, of uh, how recent the sort of long reach of uh, biomedicine um, is in Singapore. And that's something I think we want to discuss in the second half of this episode. But for now, we're going to take a short break to listen to our sponsors. So stay with us. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. I'm Faiza Zakaria with Dr. Loka Sheng, and we are talking about tuberculosis, the Singapore experience, 1867 to the present, um, published by Routledge in 2021. So when in the first half of this episode, we talked about how tuberculosis was managed in the past, how it was perceived. And in this half, we want to think more about it as a disease um, of the present. And the second half of the book deals with that turning of the tide in which tuberculosis becomes a disease that is better managed by the state. And in the 1960s and 70s, we see the development of new drug treatments, institutions to manage communicable disease, and um, they were all established and were solidly um, in place. So, Kashin, your book doesn't really, however, see this ebbing of the disease as an end to the narrative. It instead thinks about it as another beginning where success against tuberculosis brings new anxieties. So can you tell us more about that and whether you would agree that tuberculosis is still very much with us? 
Um, yeah, I mean, uh, if I were going to say that tuberculosis has ended, uh, Li Yang wouldn't be very happy with me. Uh, so, I mean, that's one of the great things of, of kind of following the documentary trail. As much as I would have liked the writing to end, you know, in 1970, there still was much material coming in. And some of these were really interesting about trying to foresee what was going to happen among the doctors and officials, uh, what was happening in coming from the results of the surveys of TB in the population that they were not finished yet. They, they were still thinking of future problems and responses to those problems. So, you know, it, it was very interesting to look at those things. You know, in light of what is happening today with COVID-19, you can see that kind of precursor of, the, of that thinking, uh, you know, how do we control this? You know, how do we anticipate and how do we act quickly enough? So I think TB uh, gives us some idea of that control. Now that that was really interesting to study. And I think the other thing that was interesting also, you know, looking at the second half of the book, the book was written when we were going to have at the time the bicentennial, and there was a debate in the in the public realm about you know about raffles and. We, sh- we should have his statue and all that. So this was a very interesting book because um, you can see that many of the achievements and the methods that were used to control TB actually were implemented during the last years of British colonial rule in Singapore by the British government, pushed often by European and local doctors. And the NGO that I talked about last week, uh, SATA, the Anti-Tuberculosis Association. So... When the, when the Singapore government, the PAP, came in in 1959, the groundwork had very much been laid already. I, I, I would say even much more than many other areas of disease control or even housing policy, which I know about. So within a few years, I think within the decade, definitely in the 1960s, you find that the tide had really turned against tuberculosis, at least as a major disease. And yet, you know, the government continued to do to do things, even as it scaled down certain parts of the disease control. But it continued to, uh, you know, go to the schools to check on the students' health, continue with BCG vaccination. And, and that showed that we cannot ignore that colonial legacy. And it's not just a matter of whether we should endorse the Raffles story or not, but to consider the many different ways in which British rule had influenced us in terms of our policy development and our political and social development as well. So it was very interesting to see that change in continuity. You know, and I'm a firm advocate of studying that immediate post-war period and also possibly the sort of interwar period before the Second World War to see how a post-colonial, post-independence uh, developments really had their precedence in the earlier periods. Hmm. And I think the uh, what you're highlighting about the colonial um, legacies um, also brings us to common practices that we still see today, among which are vaccinations, quarantines, um, control of where populations were to live, and so on. So this sort of ever-present possibility of resurgence of disease really haunts any sort of uh, campaign against um, illness. And in our current pandemic context, do you see tuberculosis as holding lessons for us all? Big lesson for the doctors and for the states would be, you know, not to think that any disease can be eradicated, especially for a city-state, which is completely urbanized. 
like Singapore, and the dangers of, of what happens when disease is believed to be so that with reduced amounts of resources, you're not going to be able to effectively control, you know, the kind of resurgence of this disease among another segment of the population or other segments of the population, namely the elderly and the migrant workers. I think the other thing is that, I mean, it's something that might well happen with COVID-19 as well. You know, COVID-19 is completely in our minds right now, but who is to say once we have the vaccination and, and we take it as endemic, you know, I think the idea of endemic is really interesting, you know, to accept the idea, to accept the disease as being endemic. But what happened with tuberculosis was that everyone, almost most people, believed that it, it was gone. And so, uh, if there is such a belief, then whoever had the disease would not face the amount of support that they would need. And one of the big problems with tuberculosis is social stigma. If someone uh, coughs next to you and but then you're found out, you're di- di- diagnosed with tuberculosis, then you, you face that uh, so- social essential and, and you face that uh, lack of support. And this is what I found, you know, even with my uh, two interviews uh, with those former undergraduates was that the, the class, the uh, university did not support them. Uh, one of the patients uh, took a leave of a semester to recover. You know, even mm. though when you are diagnosed and you spend, uh, I think, about two weeks in hospital, take the treatment, uh, take the antibiotics, and, and then you are no longer infectious. Mm. Uh, it's a bit like COVID-19. And then you can go back to school. Yeah, you can actually, from a medical point of view, you can go back to school, you know, but the response, the fears of the classmates uh, was so great that often the students, the, the patient, rather than getting support from uh, their classmates and the community, uh, they face a lot of uh, stigma. I mean, there's even a story, a very interesting story in the book that some of the doctors, young doctors who didn't know so much about tuberculosis, they stood away from the patient. And one of the senior doctors looked at them and told them, do you want to stand further away? So there is this stigma that, that happens that represents the social side, the social and cultural side of the disease that always reminds us that disease is not just about treatment, it's not just about drugs or doctors, but it's also a national and social. You're highlighting in some ways a problem that will be with us when the disease becomes endemic, right? So even if we accept the presence of the disease, we may not really accept the presence of the sick. Much of these insights are gleaned um, through oral histories, right? So I just want to sort of step back and look at the methodology that you used um, in order to access the story of tuberculosis um, in your book. And oral histories are a big part of that, as it was in your larger body of work. I mean, they really enrich your previous um, works, Quarters into Citizens, as well. So how do you deal with oral histories? How do you um, access this data? How do you manage this um, data set as a set of um, narratives that can be rather tricky to deal with because it's very easy to just get lost in the kind of conversations that we have. So can you tell us a bit more about um, your ways of approaching oral histories and organizing and reading them? Yeah, um, I always look at oral history, uh, first, first of all, as a historian, looking more always to use the oral history and think about how it can be useful. So often my oral histories uh, are driven by certain questions, certain issues that I've uncovered from reading the literature and so on. I mean, the normal 
historical approach. I'm also interested in our history as a social historian. If someone tells me this is a disease, this story of the disease, then I always my first question that comes to my mind is, is it really the case? Is, should we listen to people and, and see how they looked at it? There are a couple of interesting things about oral history of tuberculosis. Just, uh, I didn't do many interviews of patients this round. So there were a number of uh, interviews of patients at the National Archives of Singapore. And they were not very helpful from an empirical perspective. You have kind of typical cases where the interviewee talked about after the Second World War, there were lots of people dying of tuberculosis and people were coughing blood and things like that. And the interviewer did not press, you know, did not follow up with questions. So, I mean, sort of understand that, you know, their interest was not in tuberculosis. But what that tells us is that the, the interviews are interesting in terms of the, psychology, the social psychology of the interviewee, the people who grew up and lived in the 50s and 60s, and so who mark the period use, using tuberculosis. It's become a marker of those difficult times when Singapore was not yet a nation, was a colony, you know, with little provision of healthcare for the population. Uh, so that was interesting in one way from a social history point of view. The other one would be interviews with doctors uh, nurses are always interesting. I mean, to talk about Foucault and all that, it's like, can I practice Foucault by talking to a doctor, right? How much of Foucault is in there in these conversations with doctors? I mean, there is some of that. There is some of that disciplinary kind of theme that, that flows into the interview that uh, there is always a sort of tendency to blame patients the dots uh, therapy, why uh, many patients are not finishing their course of uh, medicine. So that's always a, a gray area where you can see some doctors becoming impatient, frustrated, and blaming patients. But you can see with other doctors, there's a certain amount of uh, self-awareness and self-reflexivity. And, and they realize, you know, why it's difficult for many patients to, you know, take their medicine, whether it's because there's too, ma too many of these too large medicines to take for too long a time or it's because of employment issues uh, or trying uh, not to let uh, their colleagues and their friends know about the disease. So interviews with the doctor were quite different from interviews with patients, but they reveal uh, quite interesting ways that doctors look upon the disease, both medically, but also, you know, socially, their patients as human beings who have to experience that discipline to finish their course of medicine and recover. And since you work with Dr. Su, right, who is a medical doctor and not a historian, did you have to negotiate and compromise on the, the methodologies that you use to collect <laughs> this data? And what are some of the discussions that you had about it? Well, <laughs> I mean, uh, he was asking me, you know, what is self-reflexivity? You know, what what is modernism? So those are social science stuff that I had to explain, but I, I think he understood it fine. Doctors are really smart. In terms of the rest of the methodology, it was very helpful to get access to the doctors, you know, and nurses. It was also very interesting to talk to the nurses because they are often the ones at the front line who had to implement the DOT therapy and make sure that, the, I mean, they actually sit face to face with the patient to visually check that they are taking their medication and not throwing it into the drain. So through Liang, I was able to get access to the doctors at the tuberculosis control unit, you know, which was a historically very important uh, institution that was set up under the government, under MOH, just before uh, Singapore 
became a self-governing state. And the, the rest of the methodology was quite conventional, I would say. Unfortunately, we didn't get many archival documents on tuberculosis. There were a few documents at NAS on the building of Tan Tok Seng Hospital as a sanatorium. This was a policy that was strongly debated even before the Second World War. And after the war, after the push, uh, Tan Tok Seng was decided, was approved as a sanatorium. But there were lots of delays in, in the building of this sanatorium or the conversion of Nantoxing to a sanatorium. That was, so that was useful. Other than that, you know, we relied mostly on annual reports, published sources. So pretty conventional in that sense. Mm. Since your larger body of work um, deals very much um, with similar sources and also with this concept of history from below and the social history of um, Singapore, what would be your advice to junior scholars looking to um, investigate the same areas in Singapore? How would you use oral history? I mean, for you work on uh, Jawi manuscripts, yeah? Yeah. Is there a place for oral history? I, I just feel I it's interesting find to find out. I could from the 19th century. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's not a huge part of my work. It's just part of the reason why I think I find your work fascinating. The, the, the harnessing of this sort of histories. It's so important. But in Singapore, where people are guarded, where the government is also guarded, I think, with regards to documentary sources, what are some of the challenges you faced and how do you overcome them? Yeah, I mean, one of the issues, I wouldn't even say debate, one of the issues uh, in Singapore is whether uh, oral history is reliable, mm-hmm. precisely not because of the methodological or the nature of oral history in general, but because of the power of the Singapore state and influence that it has, you know, on our memory, on our willingness to speak. And I've always found that uh, to be an issue. At the same time, I would not discard oral history because it's not possible for the state, any state, even a Singapore state, to completely influence the stories and the memories that people relate of their past. So part of this can be dealt with by the ways that we pose the questions by the, the way we relate with the interviewee. Part of this can also be used in terms of whether our history tells us something about the relationship between interviewees and the state, about the, the struggle with citizenship and the willingness, the ability to, to tell individual stories that may sometimes not align with the Singapore story. It's very interesting and fascinating in this way to see how oral history in Singapore can be used. It is it, uh, insightful. It's a useful source. It's not always a factual source, but anyway, oral history, oral historians today don't just use oral history for factual material. So I guess for junior scholars, senior scholars, the main thing is to be aware of the context in, in which we are doing oral history, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and to prepare ourselves for some of the responses that might come to us, oral history can be done with a great variety of topics. Uh, recently, I, I did oral histories of home cooks, women who uh, spend years of their lives cooking for the family. And that was challenging in another way. I found a lot of them were not willing to talk to me mm. because they don't want to talk about what happened in the kitchen. They don't want me to criticize their cooking. They were worried that I'll criticize their cooking, even though I know nothing about recipes and food. So that was difficult in another way, right? Because simply because of the domain and because of the nature of the topic. But I found 
that those who were willing to talk to me told me so much about a labor history from a labor history perspective that home cooking was work and the history of home cooking in a family was you know really about a very little noticed or discussed uh, history of the family in the private sphere. This shows that our history in Singapore is viable, right? We can learn a lot about home cooking as a form of work, as a demonstration of the agency of uh, Singaporean women who are often seen to be disempowered. And so uh, we, we, we should be creative in terms of applying oral histories and finding out more about what Singaporeans have experienced and what they think uh, in a variety of topics. You know, there's a great group of opportunities that we have. And is home cooking your next research project? Oh, tell us Finish. a bit more about what you Finished you're... already. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> what will you be working on next? Uh, currently, I'm working on uh, very much related. That's why I keep talking about COVID-19, right? So I, I'm uh, working with Lee Young again. Uh, on the history of pandemics in Singapore from the founding to including uh, COVID-19. So uh, doing lots of oral histories. I, I'm very hopeful that the uh, oral history interviews, which will be of doctors as well as uh, patients, as well as the healthy people who had to uh, endure restrictions. And, and actually, we are a bit worried that we have to do too many of these COVID-19 interview. So we are working with the National Archives to mm. document uh, the oral histories. We also want to document oral histories of earlier pandemics. 1957 and 1968, there were two uh, flu pandemics in Singapore, totally forgotten, but it still lives in the, in the minds of uh, older Singaporeans, as well as non-flu pandemics, you know, such as polio, diphtheria, uh, chickenpox that many of us are aware of. So we'll complement that with uh, archival research. And I'm very hopeful that for this topic that we can find, uh, there seems to be a lot more for archival material from the ministries at NAS, and we're waiting to hear back from uh, from them in terms of getting access and reading them. Yep, I'm excited to read that in the future. Um, yeah, so final question. Can you tell us a few of books in the field that you think should be read or should be recommended to listeners at the New Books Network? <laughs> uh, well, I think I'll answer the question in two ways. One would be, um, I would hope that uh, more scholars of Southeast Asian studies would write more about medical histories. There are mm-hmm. some really good scholars. Uh, but generally, I think that uh, the, the field is kind of still undeveloped in many ways, especially, I think, with uh, in terms of the more contemporary and modern history of uh, disease in Southeast Asia. I think there's been some good work written uh, on the 19th century, but I think there's still a lot more that can be done, uh, more specialized studies as well, you know, whether it's of what, you know, what you're doing with customary or traditional approaches, uh, cures, treatment and also with uh, responses to social history of medicine, in a, in a sense, you know, that's pretty developed in other countries. Uh, I think that in Southeast Asia, to some extent, the development of um, so, uh, social history of medicine and historiography has been a bit uneven, I think. Indonesia, for example, has a lot of great books, but maybe not the rest of the region. So thank you for contributing yours, and it's been so great to chat with you about your work. Thanks so much, Kashin. Very happy to be on. 
Yeah, thank you too to our listeners. You have been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And we have been discussing Loka Sheng's Tuberculosis, the Singapore Experience, 1867 to 2018, published by Rockledge in 2021. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Do join us next time. Mm-hmm.